0: Welcome to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellata from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: Hey everybody, you're tuned in to the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellata from singleinthecity.ca. Alcohol and drug addiction is a societal problem that is steadily growing and contributes to the destruction of families and communities. Research has identified a strong connection between disrupted family relationships and alcohol and other drug addiction. There are a few different scenarios where you might wonder... What it's like being in a relationship with an addict, or whether or not it's possible to have a relationship with an addict, or how to help an addict. On today's show, we invited a life coach and director of community relations at Habitude. Her name is Tammy Francoeur. Hello. Welcome, welcome. And Diana Romero, she's a registered psychotherapist who treats patients with depression, anxiety, post traumatic stress disorder, and addictions. They are here to help us understand addiction. Uh, what it does to relationships and offer tips on how we can help our loved ones. Welcome ladies. Thank
2: Thank you. you. Thanks for having us.
1: So to start off the show, what is addiction? Let's talk about the disease itself so that people at home can have a better understanding of what addiction is.
2: Okay. Uh, Addiction can be different types of addiction. So there can be dependency to alcohol or substance misuse. There's also um, addictions where it's more process addictions like gambling, uh, sex addictions food uh, yeah there's food um, video games internet
1: so it's a codependency on something is right. it considered a mental illness
2: it is actually so right now if somebody came to their employer uh, or to their medical doctor um, and said that they have an addiction problem um, it would be deemed under the mental health act and where does addiction come from are sort we of,
1: born with it
2: well there's two kind of thought processes one is is that it, genetically they're predisposed to having an addiction and secondly, there's the environmental factors, right? So th- people, places, and things that happen in their lives that maybe push them into a situation where they start to seek out uh, different activities, which could include you know, drugs, alcohol, gambling, um, and it fills a need for them. So it actually makes them feel better at the time.
1: And, and how do genetics and environment influence addiction? Let's start with Environment. So maybe how we're brought up, harboring uh, feelings of of when you're a child, not dealing with things, right? Maybe having a bad marriage, let's say.
3: Yes, that's a possibility. Um, It could, many times people um, start with an addiction from let's say say if you were raised in a household where there was already an addictive behavior from your parents, whether it be let's say drugs or alcohol, and now you were already used to seeing this, it's very easy for you to become part of it because this is something now that's part of your everyday life. Then we have individuals who've grown up and let's say, just as you said, have had a hard marriage, a hard life, a hard job, and they're trying to escape whatever it is, those demons that are always coming after them. They can then get into any form of addiction in order to help fill that void, that hole, that pain that they're having, that they're having a very hard time when not in that addictive process on trying to cope with it. It basically comes down to not having proper
1: coping skills. Right. Thank you, Diana. And how about when there's a family history of addiction? So when there's a family history of addiction, um,
3: again, if you're looking at the genetics, there is a lot of science based that has been found that this can be a genetic issue. So let's say your father or your mother already were alcoholics. It's not uncommon to find then in the family that you have other individuals who also have mm-hmm. these alcohol-related issues. Um, it could be, again, because it's a learned behavior, something they've seen over and over
1: again in their household. My parents drank, so I drink. Or it could also be because we said there's a genetic base. Well, I grew up drinking red wine. We were allowed to drink red wine at the table when we were teenagers, but I didn't grow up to be an alcoholic. And I, But I guess my parents weren't alcoholics either, right?
2: But sometimes you'll find that. You'll have three kids. You know, one uh, has no issues at all. Uh, one may have issues but not addictive issues, maybe more controlling issues. And one may be more passive, right? Maybe um, has more balance in their life. It, it depends, to who, who they surround themselves with, right? So there's so many variables to it. Somebody could have the predisposition, but if the choices that they made moving forward put them down a, a more positive um, laneway, it kind of steers them away from the addiction.
1: So what, how can people lessen the risk of developing an, an addiction when there's a family history, other than what you just said? Staying away from bad people well, <laughs> or I bad think, influences. Well,
2: and I'm sure in, in Diana's um, you know world, she sees it too. Is a lot of times people need to acknowledge that it you know everyone's at risk, right? No matter what, because people do face trauma, they do face uh, conflict. Sometimes they face um, you know grief, loss, things that happen in their lives, and there's always choices in how you're going to deal with that. So I think the more that we talk about it and how there's always a possibility. And what those um, positive alternative choices could be, then we have options. If we have no options, if we've only been shown one way to deal with things, then unfortunately, that's usually the way that we kind of deal with them.
3: Diana? Yeah, and I have to agree with her. It comes down to choices, your coping skills. What are your coping skills? I talk about this with my patients all the time. When you get upset, what is the first thing do you do? Do you run and cry in your room or do you run to the liquor cabinet and drink? How are you at that moment dealing with that issue that you're presented with?
1: Okay, we need to take a break. We'll be right back. We're talking about addictions and relationships on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, the Dating and Relationship Show.
0: You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: You're tuned in to the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellata. In studio today, we have Tammy Francoeur. She's a life coach and also the Director of Community Relations at Habitude. And also, uh, Diana Romero. She's a psychotherapist. We're talking about addiction and relationships. And uh, before the break, Diana was mentioning uh, coping skills. She teaches people coping skills um, when it comes to dealing with issues so that people don't turn to alcohol and drugs. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and what are some of these coping skills so one of the things we want to look at when it comes to coping skills is a lot of times we
3: do things out of an anxiety base so you know something's going difficult on in our lives we get nervous we get anxious we get scared or even we might even get depressed and we don't know how to handle that so some of us will go like I say we'll cry in our room we'll go and eat a cupcake
1: you know smoke cigarettes yeah (laughs) (laughs)
3: smoke cigarettes and then you know and some people may just actually have a drink to calm them down okay and that's okay but when it becomes to a point where you feel that you have to have this drink every single time your life becomes stressful, and it's more than one. You're getting to the point where you're becoming inebriated. Then you have to stop and think. Wait a minute, what is going on here? And that, at that point, for many people, that becomes their their coping skill. That's their way of escaping. But we know that that's not actually a coping skill. But I would think
1: that's easier said than done in regards to to not like turning to drugs or alcohol and and learning to cope with it without that. You know, for some people, I think that would be such a hard thing to do. So how do you how do you turn people around well, from that?
2: I was going to say, I think a lot of it's what you're modeled, right? So whatever you see, if you see somebody deal with a, a problem and they deal with it more um, in a more healthy manner, you're more apt to deal with it in a more he- healthy manner. But if you've been modeled to kind of have that chaos and um, look for that quick fix, then that's kind of your toolbox. You go to the quick fix because that's what you've been taught. Mm-hmm. You don't kind of look at the big picture and say, you know what? This is really crappy. I've had a crappy day or something really bad happened. But I know that things are going to change. I know that I just need to give it time. I know that maybe I need to go for a run or I need to maybe call a friend. Um, I know that I have options out there. Their toolbox is bigger. So healthy people have healthy, like bigger toolboxes. They, they, they're they able to grab. And even if it doesn't have um, like a lot of, a lot more stuff, I just mean that the, the choices are, are, are bigger. So they can do things um that maybe take up more time right so Mm -hmm. they may only have five healthy things that they choose but the five healthy things maybe i'm going to go hang out with a friend tonight for four or five hours because i can do that or i'm going to go to the gym for a couple hours and blow off some steam or i'm going to go for um maybe you know an ice cream or something you're going to look at things that you can do that kind of temporarily make you feel better, but don't have the after effects of making you feel worse.
1: But Diana, how would you deal with people who are addicted to prescription drugs? Because that is something that is is huge right now. You know, yeah. you get prescribed these uh, Oxycontins or whatever, you break your ankle and then all of a sudden you're addicted and you're not a person who normally takes drugs, but you need them for the pain.
2: But not everyone who takes the pills gets addicted either, right? There's there's people but that there go- are a lot of people that do though. They
3: they do, but that's a growing problem. And- it is, and we've seen it all over the news. We recently saw it with that doctor who was who was addicted to the fentanyl patches and ended up losing his license. It was all over. I think the Toronto Star was huge, and um in that situation it's a little different only because. These individuals didn't start their addictive habit because they just came across a drug one day and said, oh, hey, let me try this. They had some form of accident, some form of injury where their pain, you know, pain is real, regardless of whether it's a a paper cut or whether it is a car accident. It's a very real thing. So what ends up happening is you start taking these medications in order to help you to cope with the pain. Mm-hmm. And then again, we're not going to get into the whole neural, you know, neuroscience, the whole biology of it, because then we're talking about pharmacogenetics, pharmacodynamics, how the drug affects the body, how the body affects the drug. But at some point in there, it gets to the point where, in, and I've had patients who have told me about this, they feel that even though the pain, they know it might not be there, but every time they try to withdraw, they feel that pain again. So is it emotional? Is it physical? Nonetheless, these drugs at the moment are helping them to cope, and some do have Mm -hmm. chronic pain, and now they become addicted. And for many of them, it wasn't by choice. So you teach them the same sort of skills, coping skills? Mm -hmm. In that case, yes, but then we also need to work with their medical doctor in helping them to lower these dosages. So that's slowly. slowly. That's right, and we can wean them off, because just wean them off like that, it could be a shock to their system.
1: Right. And how about these medications like Effexor, these anxiety medications? I mean, they're prescribed by the doctor, but aren't they essentially drugs that are not good for us?
3: No, no, I I can't agree with that because these drugs are made. You see, here's the thing. They're not coping skills. These drugs are made to help you to get through your depression and help you to get through your anxiety. But if you are not seeking psychotherapy, your problem isn't going to go away. You're not going to wake up and say, oh, I'm going to take an Effexor and my life will be great today. That problem, whether it be your marriage, your anxiety, your well depression, yeah, remains. So you have to get therapy
1: to help you to learn to cope. Because if you don't, you will be on these drugs for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are some signs to look out for uh, that let us know that a family member or you know your partner uh, may be struggling with an addiction?
2: Well, there's There's lots of signs. I mean, um, some of the signs are usually what we feel in our guts so you know a lot of times we'll start to say you know what that person's acting a little bit different I'm I'm noticing that um, maybe they're not as being as responsible Uh, maybe they're more neglectful Uh, maybe they're more withdrawn maybe they're isolating secretive uh, secretive Um, maybe they're moody Moody. absolutely sometimes they're spending habits you know they used to be a pretty good saver and all of a sudden they're broke Um, they used to be very reliable with work and all of a sudden they're calling in sick um, maybe they're you know pointing the finger at other people for their problems a lot of the times they're angry or they're extremely sad I mean the, the thing with it with addictions is that it's it's extremes So They're either really really low or really really high But they're not normal. Yeah, right So when you start to see things that are uh, offset from what was normal then you start to notice that things
1: are changing We need to take a break. You're listening to The Dating and Relationship Show. Interesting show today. We're talking about addiction and relationships. Stay with us.
0: Now back to The Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bilotta from SingleInThisCity.ca on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.
1: We are back Thank you for tuning in to the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellata, your host. Today, we have Diana Romero. She's a registered psychotherapist. And Tammy Francoeur, she's a life coach. And we're talking today about addiction and relationships. And so now I want to talk about the family disruption that addicts face when it comes to family relationships. Diana, do you want to answer that? So... When
3: we talk about family disruptions, those are, um, you know, and I think Tammy can agree and you see them a lot, you know, at your at your place. It, it's very it's difficult because mm-hmm. the thing is, when we find out that a family member is abusing drugs and or alcohol. It's devastating,
1: actually. I've been through it. It's devastating. It is.
3: It's very devastating. And many times family t- tend to blame themselves. They ask themselves, you know, did I miss something? Was it something
1: I did? I think the parents do that. Yes, Mm -hmm. and that's where the enabling comes in, right? Correct.
2: Yeah. There's always one enabler, right? There's there's always always someone that keeps them going strong. Right. uh, Because because, honestly, on their own, they don't have that. Yeah, I
1: guess they feel if they turn their back on them, then they're just going to take a nosedive and and die, really. no. and
3: interesting you say that. I actually did have once a patient where the mother said, because I was afraid that this individual will go out, you know, and mug someone, I would give them the money so that they Mm -hmm. could go get the drugs because, you know, I'm keeping that person safe. So in reality, while they're saying is true, and I say this with air quotations, nonetheless, it doesn't change the fact that they're still allowing their <laughs> loved one to go out and oh, yeah. and get drugs.
2: I've had some where they go and buy the drugs right from the dealers. The parents yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, and they'll go right to the liquor store and, and pick up the bottle that's killing them. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy and, when you think of it from the outside, but from the inside, they just think it's normal. And tell
1: us now why this is so wrong. Why is that so wrong?
2: For someone to get help, the pain of, of, of drinking or using or, or gambling has to be uh, stronger than getting help. So at some point, it has to be a painful experience to keep doing what they're doing. And unfortunately, when we keep kind of leading them to, you know, to, to the drug or, or giving them the money or, or making excuses for them, we're not making it painful. I mean, they're using the drugs to run away from their pain, but the only way that they're going to come back to the other side Is that they have to start to say okay this pain of using or or misusing these substances or or these you know know, addictions that I'm I'm presently doing are causing me so much pain in my life I'm I'm losing relationships I I can't afford it financially I'm you know my job's at risk my credibility's at risk I mean a lot of times those things have to break down and unfortunately mothers Mm -hmm. especially wives want to see it done nicely So they would like all that to happen, but they don't want that person to be in any type of pain or to feel discomfort. You're not going to get someone to shift unless there's discomfort. And by buying them stuff and giving them money and making excuses, you're making it comfortable. And so, you know, what I usually say to families is, are you okay with that bottle of vodka or that, you know, bag of cocaine being the last drug or alcohol that they ever drink? If it's the thing that kills them, are you okay being the one responsible for buying it?
1: Wow, well, I can't believe they actually go out and buy it. But yeah. it does happen, right? All the time.
3: Because in their mind, they're keeping them safe. In their mind, they're helping them. They don't see it as enabling. And that's always the key word. Yeah. They don't see it as enabling. They see it as, you know, I'm protecting other people. Or I'm and protecting, protecting them. them as well
1: from from law enforcement. Because when, when some of them don't get their drugs
2: or alcohol, they can get pretty violent, right? Yeah. But, you know, again, we have to make them responsible for their own actions, right? So if the consequences is they get locked up because they've been violent, then that's the consequences. That's what makes it painful to, to continue doing what they're doing. And that may be the thing that kind of pushes them into recovery. Because that might be that.
1: the only way to get them to a hospital Um, Yes, because everything you do is a choice. Everything, every decision you make in your
3: life, everything you put in your mouth, everything that comes out, every action, every behavior, everything you do is on you. And what happens many times is that family members want to try to take that away and say, no, I'll make that choice for them. But we can't. We have to let people make their choices. And as Tammy said, if that involves you being locked up, and unfortunately for many, if that involves your death, that is 100% on you you have to make that choice and decide when enough is enough and we can't allow other people to i'll buy it for you because
2: they always have moments of clarity yeah everyone thinks that people are zoned out all the time and the reality is they do have moments of clarity when they could make that choice they just need to kind of be pushed and that's why sometimes you'll get those crisis calls which says where they're so i really need help i today i'll go right now but when that's you start because to- they've hit rock bottom right yeah. and where
1: they're almost at their deathbed because i've seen it or pe- they're all, they haven't eaten for five days absolutely they ha- all they drank was alcohol no water yeah. and like they know
2: that they're dying their body's telling them hey you're, always you're at your deathbed bud, right so they'll look for someone they may even have had a, you know their employers say you're going to be fired if you don't get help and so now they're in crisis saying i want do you have a bed today i need to get in now if there was um a second choice so somebody said to them, look, we want you to make some calls to see if you can get in. And if I said, well, there's no bed today, they would say, well, you know what? I tried. There was no bed. There was no bed, right? So oh, well.
3: so that's it's following
2: it. through as well to say, you know what? We want you to get help. And we don't care if you have to call withdrawal management every hour. We want you to, to be as invested in, in finding the bed to get help as you would be finding the drug or the alcohol.
1: Okay, we need to take a break. We'll be right back. Very interesting conversation. You're listening to The Dating and Relationship Show. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: It's Sunday night, you're tuned into the Dating and Relationships Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellotta of singleinthecity.ca. Today we're talking about addiction and relationships. In studio today we have Diana Romero, she's a registered psychotherapist. We also have Tammy, she's a life coach and she's the Director of Community Relations at Habitude, which is a holistic addictions program. And now I want to talk about dealing with a family member who has an addiction. So what are some ways that drug and alcohol addiction can ruin a family dynamic?
2: Uh, well, a lot of times it's a trust, right? Uh, you know, in family trust is everything. When you love somebody, you expect to trust them and, and unfortunately when addictions um, takes its toll, uh, there's lying, you know, and scheming and manipulating and a lot of um, untruths that are told. Uh, people have a hard time dealing with that because they don't know sometimes um, how to read that person. And that's why it's important for the the family to get help as well. 100%. I mean, a lot of times, again, you know, not blaming the families, but you know, and and I speak from experience myself, is that, you know, whatever we hold on to is a lot of times to protect ourselves, to protect our own credibility, sometimes to protect our image within our own communities, within our own family dynamics. So a lot of times the things that we do to kind of enable the the person with the addiction is self-serving, right? We don't want to look at our own stuff sometimes. We don't want to, you know, not be the person that can fix things, so uh, I think and when, oftentimes
1: people get into relationships thinking uh, that they can fix someone I see this often in the dating world you start dating someone within three months you 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 realize okay this person has an addiction but instead of going okay I'm out of there it's like well I really care for this person and I, I want to try to help them right yeah and what do you guys how do you feel how do you guys
3: feel about that So personally, when it comes to an addict who's going, an individual who has an addiction is going through recovery, I do not recommend them getting into a relationship within the first year because you are now learning on how to live as a new individual with new coping skills and issue. But and some
1: people don't even realize that they have an issue.
3: No, but if you're but if you in recovery, okay. then you know you have an
1: issue. That's now, right. let's
3: be honest, you do a, ra- a dating and relationship show, you know that dating in itself, my God, is it's that stressful. So,
1: it's so difficult.
3: It's so, so now think about now having to deal with this other individual and all the problems that are going to come with dating because that's just part of life. It doesn't mean your relationship is fractured. It just means there are issues. And on top of that, you have this recovery issue. Now you're going through recovery, you have this addiction issue, you're going through recovery, and now they they upset you. What is the first thing you're going to do? If you're just learning your coping skills, but this person that you love and or really like and or really lust after has just ticked you off, what are you gonna do? Are you going to follow the proper coping procedures you've been taught, or are you going to go back to what how you used to cope, which was with drugs and alcohol? There's a fine balance there, and this is why I do not recommend any of my patients to be in a relationship within the first year. They have to be in a relationship mm-hmm. with themselves and learn how to practice these brand new coping skills, because they probably just came out of rehab 30, have been in there maybe 30, 60, 90 days. Yeah. You don't learn new coping skills like that overnight, in 90 days it takes a while to keep incorporating that every day in your life but relationships are stressful and so they
2: stress you yeah i I mean you can date somebody that has you know addiction problems uh you know a lot of times i I mean i did um you don't see it at first yeah but when you look back i mean there are are very clear signs that there's um issues right i think for a lot of women and for a lot of men you know they see a new person. They want to nurture them. They want to love them. They want to be with them. They want to fix them. They want to fix them. But you Some know. Some people are attracted to that type of person. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's are the attracted to,
1: Right. Or they're attracted to drama because they've had a lot of drama throughout their right. lives. Yes. yes. And so you have to kind of, you know, put it in check and say.
2: You have to put yourself in check. First right. How much do go, I love myself? I attra- yeah. And why am I attracting these people? Yeah. Because honestly, I mean, I think again, we're fulfilling our own needs just like the enabling we're fulfilling our own needs. And usually we don't want to be by ourselves. So we will take whatever, you know, we get, even though it's not perfect. And um, It's <clears> a very selfish behavior. It is Because selfish. of what you
3: just said, you're f- fulfilling your own needs with, I can help Laura. I can be Laura's savior. I can do all of this for her. But it's a very selfish need because am I really helping well, you? Well,
2: sometimes there's kids, right? So sometimes, you know, these women or men will put their kids, their blood to the side for these strangers. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes they'll even put their children, their blood to the side. For these strangers, these new people that they're dating that are struggling with addictions, maybe struggling with um, abusive behaviors, they will put their own children to the side and put their their, their, their families at risk just to try and, and have that relationship with that sick person or maybe because they feel that they can help save that sick person. Ultimately, they're still putting their kids at risk. Earlier on, you mentioned trust and how
1: trust if trust is broken it's it's hard to repair and and to get it back but how can someone or how can a relationship heal when when the trust has been broken
2: It's baby steps
3: Yeah I have to agree with Tammy's statement it's very much as baby steps it comes down to being transparent being honest with what's going on it's about saying you know I'm I'm sorry that I've done x y and z you know, let's say they've gone through the recovery program, you know, I'm, I'm making changes, I want to change. And here's where I need to be held accountable. Trust is gained through accountability. So just like I tell when I do um, couples counseling, and I tell them if the individual who you're with, for example, has cheated on you, and then later on, they say, okay, we need to gain trust again. So I need to know, I would like to see your phone or your emails and see where you're at. Now, I'm not saying we're going to do this for the next year. But what I'm saying is, if you have nothing to hide, you hide nothing. So you can show it and say, here, Mm-hmm. this is where I'm at here's my transparency here's my accountability if your account is cleared then you should be good to go in a few months mm-hmm. it goes the same with addicts be honest about when you're feeling like I'm getting an urge I'm getting a craving help me talk well, about it that's right
2: yes I've even had families say sometimes you know immediately after they finish in the program they'll say I trust them again I love them again and it's like no that's too quick yeah give it's it time earned. give it time it to okay
1: we need to take a break we'll be right back
0: back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bilotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: You're listening to Global News Radio 640 Toronto, the Dating and Relationship Show. I'm your host, Laura Bilotta of singleinthecity.ca. Today on the show, we're talking about addiction and relationships. And we have Tammy Francoeur who's a life coach in studio with us she's also the director of community relations at Habitude uh, which is a holistic addictions program and we have Diana Romero she's a registered psychotherapist in studio and um, why is it almost impossible for people abusing alcohol and drugs to maintain healthy relationships
3: Um, I think as Tammy had mentioned earlier it's because you have three people now in this relationship. You have the individual, the partner that they want, and the, and the addiction or their drug of choice that they're using. Relationships don't work that way. Unless you're polygamous, it's either one, you know, it's either two people, but it can't
1: be all three. There's not enough room for that. Yeah, because they always choose the addiction. A hundred percent. It's much stronger, yeah. 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 Okay, so let's talk about sex, intimacy, and sexual relationships. Uh, what is the impact of addiction on, on these two?
3: Um, So you can look at the physical. If you are too high or too drunk, you may not be able to properly perform. And in many cases, you're possibly not because you're affecting the anatomy of your body and the way the blood flow works. And just in many, you know, many different aspects. And so You know, as I stated earlier, the polite way you may
1: not be able to dock the ship properly into the bay. Yes, and I have a personal story about that. So I dated this guy a few years back, and uh, he had a difficult time uh, performing, let's just say. And I found out down, you know, a few months down the road, he he told me that he was addicted to prescription drugs, and that Mm -hmm. was the reason. But I always felt that it was me. You know, and it really did put a damper on our relationship.
2: But it's it's the same with people that are addicted to cocaine. A lot of times they become uh, hyper-aroused, right? So, you know, they're looking for a lot of sex when they're using cocaine because they have this superpower where they're feeling very um, confident and... and um, sexy I guess more aroused um and some people
1: hide that that hide that they're taking cocaine like there was a guy on our show a few weeks back and he said that yeah because she was she cheated on him and all this but uh, he said that she was she was taking cocaine or doing cocaine for a, a long time and he had no clue and I'm like how do you have no clue that mm-hmm. like I did jumping I mean, around and no. did, you
2: yeah my husband was to cocaine and you didn't have a clue no, not at first. I didn't know because so it's, it's. Was he it's, doing
1: it daily? So then you just thought that was. Just, well, so he did eventually. he Personality.
2: Yeah. Well, I saw it change. Right. Something okay. in my gut. I remember saying to him, "Something's changed. Like there's something. You know, you're using a drug or something because your personality's changing." Now, for a lot of guys, you know, again, if you go specific to a drug, you know, a lot of men uh, and women who use cocaine, a lot of them uh, have very low self-esteem. A lot of them have had some type of trauma or um, sexual abuse. So that drug works perfectly for them because all of a sudden now they're happier, right? They're, they're, they're more content. For the they're time feeling being. more Absolutely. But then super. when they crash, they crash very hard. People that use opiates, uh, a lot of times they're super anxious. So they're very nervous. You know, maybe to even be around people, they'd be extremely nervous when they take an opiate. All of a sudden now they're feeling a little bit calmer. So emotionally, it actually makes them feel a little bit um, more confident.
1: Yeah. And how about drugs like marijuana? Because obviously it's getting, you know, it's going to be legal here soon, and mm-hmm. um, does will will that affect people's uh, relationships?
2: They'll be think? running to rent the variety store to the bedroom.
1: I mean, do you think it? Do you think it's it's affecting people's current current relationship?
2: You know what? I
3: guess it depends on the individual that you're with. If you're with somebody who is not okay with you using marijuana, you know, from uh, a relationship standpoint, that might be a problem. Now, I've never actually looked into if it causes any sort of performance or erectile dysfunction or those sorts of things. So I can't actually answer that. But I would say, you know, again, it depends. Some people are not okay with people who are using any sort of drugs. And some Mm -hmm. people think, oh, it's just marijuana, not a big deal.
1: I think it's not a big deal if you smoke a joint here and there. But I think it's a big deal if you wake up, you smoke... You know, afternoon, you got to smoke. Well, yeah, because now it, it's a. The, After work, you've got to smoke. Now you're addicted. Anything you feel that you cannot live without
3: or that is causing your disruption in your work life, in your personal life, in any type of life, now it's considered an addiction, it's mm-hmm. considered a dependency. Yeah. If you feel dependent on this, like you said, you cannot. Walk out of the house without smoking. I, I've, I've had patients who've told me I wake up and I smoke. Yeah. I go to work and I smoke. And we're talking something that's just cigarettes. Oh, I yeah. come home and I smoke. I even have to take like 10 breaks throughout the day, even if it's for one minute, because I need to smoke.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We've had that's guys, lo- lots of men who, you know, they have their kind of morning marijuana, their afternoon marijuana, yeah. their after dinner marijuana. Their... And I mean, these are people that um, are high functioning. But they still need that marijuana to function. So they've come
1: to you to help them? Yes. So they thought that smoking marijuana was an issue then?
2: Well, I think what ends up happening is you get to a certain age where eventually, I mean, it really does affect the lungs. So eventually, they're coming for a lot of medical reasons. They have edibles now. Well, even if it's (laughs) edibles. You need some chocolate. Even if it's edibles, I think for some, it just, sometimes it actually starts to work the adverse. So what used to calm them will now make them anxious. Sometimes what used to calm them now makes them angry. We see that a lot where you know what we used to work has stopped working. And actually what stopped working now has become very problematic. Yeah. So they, they, they are choosing to, to make it you know a change because again, it's you know maybe affecting the relationships. We need to take a break. You're
1: tuned in to the dating and relationship show. Stay with us.
0: Listening to the dating and relationship show with Laura Bellata from SingleInTheCity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: I'm here with my real estate friend Holly Garvey Penny. What's up with HGPs
2: tips and trends today? Hi Sandra. Today's tip I'm calling "Know What You Want and Get It." Although the media today is talking about a market downturn, good properties are selling fast with interest from multiple buyers. In fact, I just experienced an offer night with seven bidders. So make sure you do your research, know what you want and can afford, know what good value is, and strategize with your realtor to get it. Call or email me today to do it. I can help you. They can reach you at hgp at bosleyrealestate.com or 416-322-8000. Thanks, Sandra.
0: Now back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bilotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.
1: You're tuned into the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellata. We're talking about addiction and relationships with Tammy Francoeur, a life coach and Director of Community Relations at Habitude, and Diana Romero. She's a registered psychotherapist. Uh, people, you know, will stay in a relationship with an addict feeling like if they love them enough, they can somehow fix them or cure them. And we know this isn't really the case. So what should someone do if they're dealing with an addict and want to get them help? Diana. Um, First,
3: remember, we can't save anybody or help anybody. It has to really come from them. However, with that being said, you can start the conversation and say, hey, for example, Tammy, I'm noticing X, Y, and Z. You know, I love you. I care for you. I really think you need to get help for your problem and I want to be by your side to help you do it. But at the end of the day, it it is all on Tammy. At the end of the day, no matter how much I love her, no matter what wall I'm willing to go to and back, it will come down to her to do that. And then the next thing is if she says, you know what, yes, I have a problem, I need help, then you wanna look at you know, how severe is their addiction? Do they need to be an inpatient? So as for example, as Tammy was mentioning at the facility Habitat, do they sh- do the, do they need that type of therapy where they physically need to be in for 30, 60, 90, 120 days to help with this? Or they do they need to do outpatient? where they need to start, for example, seeing me, for example, for psychotherapy and understanding why they have this type of addiction? What started this addiction and why they keep holding on to it?
1: Tammy?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, every situation is different. Uh, sometimes, uh, as we- we were talking about earlier, um, different people are affected differently by different drugs. So, you know, if I take a 25 or 30 year old male, um, maybe drinking the exact same amount or using the exact same amount of drugs, their bodies could be affected uh, much more drastically, as well as emotionally. You know, sometimes somebody has had a lot of trauma in their life and unfortunately to do it outpatient doesn't work because, you know, they start to go into the dialogue of what really got them drinking or using drugs and it it triggers them and typically what they tell me is on their way home you know from their session um they're pulling into the dealer's house or they're pulling into the liquor store again so sometimes they need to be in a a bubble to kind of work through that stuff Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes medical things yeah
1: so what can people expect um or if they enroll in in habitude
2: well, we're an authentic biopsychosocial program, so we look at genetically, you know, the physiological things that are going on with their bodies. So we do full um, medical um, screenings, you know, e- ECGs and blood. Take a screenings. look at the brain. Uh, we do neurofeedback as well. So we're, we take a look at physiologically what's going on with them. We also know that emotionally there's a there's a connection. Um, sometimes just from what they're thinking can really affect their body. Their sleeping habits, especially uh, their eating habits, um, exercise. We also look at social uh, supports, which could be, you know, their jobs, their family, uh, friends, and then spiritually. um, Sometimes it's not, I'm not talking more the religious spirituality, I'm talking more about how they feel about themselves, that inner feeling, that, you know, mindfulness is what we're trying to teach them. So we, we kind of incorporate the whole body. And also we incorporate the families, so we thread through the families uh, at the same time so that they're all healing, and at least which is very important well absolutely and and not just healing them all at once, but starting them down that pathway to recovery, because as Diana said earlier, it takes a long time, but you got to get the wheels moving because
1: often family members don't truly understand why so but, the person know, who is addicted, yeah. Um, to whatever it is, how how come they're acting like that? Why can't they stop? Why do they keep hurting me? Why do they keep hurting the family? Why are they hurting the kids? Why are they doing that? They have right? no
2: stop sign. Mm-hmm. Neurologically, there's no stop sign. Their their amygdala, which is the emotional part of the brain, is so fired up that whenever they have a a, a, a feeling or a thought, it basically just you know implodes, and unfortunately, the, the frontal cortex of their brain there's no stop sign there it should actually you know logistically we could be driving down the street we see a cop we know we need to stop when you have an addiction problem you don't see the cop you just keep going right so now there are times when somebody's addicted they may be driving down the street and they will see the cop and they will stop because they know that the consequences of not stopping could be problematic so there are times when that frontal cortex does work our job is to get it working again. And that's what, you know, Diana does. And that's what our team of therapists do and our doctors do is they get the body working the way it should get that machine running again, get them sleeping, because honestly, sleep is a big, big issue. And, uh, you know, the um, moderating their, their emotions, so, you know, they're like I said, and before. how often
1: does does someone who has an alcohol problem use that as an excuse, drinking more alcohol, because they
2: can't sleep and the reason why they can't shut their brain down whether it's you know that chatter in their brain that's going on whatever it is it's that thought process that they just can't shut it down and we have to teach them how well thank you Tammy and Diana for joining us today and sharing
1: with us your expertise in the world of addiction and Relationships. Thank you for having Um, us. Just everybody out there that um, is dealing with something like this, just know that you're not alone, and help is available for both parties, the person who is suffering from addiction and the person who is dealing with this individual. Ladies, how can people get a hold of you, Diana?
3: So um, you can Google me. I do have my, it's romeropsychotherapy.com. You can easily find me there, Um, and I can talk, do a consultation, and see what's going on.
2: And Tammy? Um, Our website is uh, Habitude.ca. So like habits and attitude put together, Habitude.ca. And um, our phone number is uh, 1-877-523-8369. And you can follow me on
1: Instagram at Laura underscore belaja to try to get hold of me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Until next week, ciao for now.